Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. So, what's going to be? <laughs> L-U-P-E. Joy. Come on. Woo! There's so many things to say right now. I got so much on my mind. So, by the way, somebody should do some research. Is that little horn lick at the beginning there, is that the same horn lick that's at the beginning of Kick Push? Because it sounds almost identical. And Lupe Fiasco does appear on both records, which brings up something that came up this morning. So I wrote a newsletter. I write a newsletter, and the newsletter came out today, and it was kind of all about lyrics and stuff like that. And it's also about the fact that, you know, like if if it's July 4th and you're not, like, going anywhere... That would be me. <laughs> um, so my son and I used to watch Independence Day every 4th of July because it's, you know, first of all, it's an example of successful presidential leadership, which is really hard to find. I mean, over the last X number of years, post-Obama, it's just like really difficult to sort of see effective and I think Obama could have gotten us through that too. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe not. He might have been talking... To the aliens about like red lines or something. Maybe that wouldn't have worked. <laughs> I'm going to draw a red line right here. I'm going to draw a right, red line right where you obliterated the White House. All right. But like, okay, I'm going to let that one ride, but nothing else. Anyway, we used to watch Independence Day. And, um, but anyway, we didn't this year. But I was thinking, you know, why don't people listen to the cast album of Hamilton? I mean, what's, what could be more July 4th than that? Anyway, somebody wrote to me today and said that his he had other things he wanted to say, but he said, did I consider Hamilton to be a rap musical? I should probably give out the phone number before I get into this. All right. By the way, it's all calls today. 888-720-WNPR. We already have two on the board. 888-720-9677. No guests, no topics, just you making phone calls. Um 888-720-WNPR. Okay, where was I? So this guy wrote in, was he, and he said that his, did I consider Hamilton to be a rap musical? Because his sister says that she loves Hamilton, but she hates rap. And I think his sister is not alone. 
I mean, I don't know literally whether she's alone or not. She she might have a rich and full life with lots of people around her. But I mean, I don't think his sister is unique, although she may be unique. Um, I think a lot of people, there's a subset of the human race that says that, right? I loved Hamilton. I don't, I don't like rap. So somebody should come up with a list, a playlist of 10 rap numbers that represent a kind of gentle bridge for that guy's sister and other people like her from Hamilton to the world of rap. So that's just something that's on my mind today, and I needed to get it off my chest. And here we go. Uh, The calls are starting to come in. There'll be lots of things to talk about today. So we'll start with Mark from Naugatuck. We also have Dave from Lake Como, Ohio. Uh, Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Colin, we spoke on your last uh, call-in show. Yes, we did. We did. I asked you to open an envelope, but you didn't have it. I've got the envelopes today. i got the envelopes today. Yes. All right. So is that what you want me to do? You want me to open an envelope? Yeah, I'll open the okay. envelope. So just to contextualize this a little bit, actually today I have Bo, because I didn't have an envelope last time, I overcorrected. I have Boku, Mr. Carp envelopes. Boku is the French word for hella. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I'm going to reach in. I'm just going to grab any Mr. Carp. So Mr. Carp is possibly the smartest person. By, by some metrics, he is the smartest person I ever met or knew. I've known him since college. And so he does. He's, he clips things out and he sends them to me. This is something this is postmarked May 31st, so it may not be entirely up to date. The envelope I just pulled. I'm doing kind of a double blind thing here. Uh, I'm A, you know, opening the envelope. You can hear that happening. Um, but I also blindly picked this envelope from among others. Boy, this is, it looks like it might be just one big, huge article. Let's see what it is. Um, okay, there's a lot of stuff from the New Yorker. It looks like he's clipped out a lot of stuff from the New Yorker. This is not from the New Yorker. Okay, this is interesting. Hot type makes news. The last of its kind, a small town newspaper in Colorado, is still slugging it out. And I think what this is about uh, is a newspaper in, shall we say, I don't know how to pronounce this, Saguache, Colorado. Um, and it, I think the point of this is that, yeah, they're using hot lead. That's what it is. So um, I can say something about this anyway, which is like hot lead is the process by which type used to be set. Um, And and for the most part, most newspapers transitioned over to that. I'm going to say somewhere in the 1970s uh, because Offset came in, right? So Offset printing came in basically, you know, maybe even earlier than the 70s. But so it became possible essentially to send something to what was more or less a computer that would print out a strip of type that looked like, you know, a column of type in a newspaper. So, but it used to be, when I came to work in the Hartford Current, which is in 1976, there was still hot lead there because the advertising, for some reason or other, a lot of the ads that appeared in the newspapers were set in hot lead. And it always looked like A, kind of dangerous, and B, like maybe, maybe not the most OSHA. I mean, it just seemed like there were like fumes and weirdness and stuff like that. So anyway, this is an article from Mr. Carp. It appeared in the Smithsonian. It is the last linotype-produced newspaper in the United States and perhaps in the world. So I don't know. I don't know, Mark, what we would say about this, although there, I think one thing that our show likes, we like defunct technologies or technologies that are in the process of becoming defunct. Like, we should do a show pretty soon, Mr. McPants, about phone booths, you know, because, like, I don't know, like, the, we maybe in some of our lifetimes, 
the last few phone booths <laughs> will just go out of existence. And, and so this is something I, I like celebrating a technology that, you know, is either gone or almost gone. But, the, boy, the idea that there's one newspaper. I have to read this whole article, and it would take too long to read it while people are waiting on the air. But, like, why in the world are they still doing this? Offset technology is pretty cheap, so I, I, they, they must have some kind of artistic reason for doing it. All right, was that satisfying? That, that was satisfying, yeah. And, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe who thought vinyl would ever come back? I mean, right. we thought of that. We, that used to be a quote-unquote defunct technology, and now it's booming, you know? Right. So, uh, they can't keep yeah. up with the demand. And I think it's sort of part of a kind of, you should pardon the expression, hipster aesthetic uh, to some degree kind of a millennial slash hipster aesthetic, this idea of, I mean, almost a rebellion against obsolescence, right? It's like, oh, I mean, there's a lot of good reasons for vinyl to come back that have nothing to do with that. But I think in general, you walk into Urban Outfitters and there's a whole bunch of crap there that you thought was never, you were never going to see again, you know, and I mean... I'm talking about Urban Outfitters circa, I don't know, right. around 2000, 2005. I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. But th- that was the whole notion, right, is we were we will revive all this stuff that you thought was dead, old candies and <laughs> old, you know, hats and, I mean, all that kind of stuff. So, so that was definitely an aesthetic, and it probably won't go away. Yeah, there's probably going to be some freaking goth, you know, goth newsletter that's set on hot lead type uh, that'll come out <laughs> and, and mark uh, I'm going to buy you a subscription to that. The day that that happens, you are going to be getting the goth. What will the goth newsletter that's set in hot lead, what will that be called? I don't know. Pale King or something like that. Uh, or Gale King. All right. So let's go to Cheryl. All right. Let's go to Cheryl in Plantsville. And then we'll go to Dave in Lake Como, um, Ohio. Hi, Cheryl. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Wondering what your opinion might be on uh, holding the men accountable for all these pregnancies. I really can't understand why all these pregnancies are occurring when, and the cost and the health and uh, everything that the women go through just for the cost of condoms. So I'll take your answer off the air. All right. I mean, the men aren't being accountable at all. No. I mean, grandparents can do this and, and friends can do this and neighbors can do this. So you're saying accountable? Yeah, you're saying. Are you saying accountable in terms of just social pressure, or social condemnation, or are you saying be held accountable in some more structured kind of way? Oh, being held accountable in laws or anything, anything. They're they're just not being accountable at all. Yeah, I mean, I just can't you, comprehend it. Right. Well, I mean, there are avenues to sue for support and stuff like that. But to me, it doesn't really sort of solve the problem or if the, okay, let me just back up um, and say, or oh, so you said you wanted to take your answer off the air. I mean, you can stay on the air if you want. Um, yeah, off the air. Okay. So I don't know exactly how to address that. I need, we need to back up. So one of the things I've been, I've been as I get older, I think I'm more centrist. Um, as you get older, you just kind of think, ah, you know, it just doesn't make any sense not to try to think this through a little bit more deeply. Uh, and and I'm not saying that all, that always leads to centrism, but you at least start to consider all the different narratives here. So one of the things that um, I mean, I, I'm all for holding men accountable if we can figure, figure out a way to do it, do that. 
Um, although it's a little bit of a knife's edge, right? Because you're going to hold men accountable, but you're going to, I mean, the, the same philosophy that says let's hold men accountable also says let's give women as close to full autonomy as we can. Um, I mean, it could be argued that if you are going to legally hold men accountable, whatever that exactly means, um, I mean, hold them accountable beyond what's available now, um, that you, I mean, you can't really, I don't think, do that without then cutting them in on the whole process. And and I think it's why probably you don't hear about it more, that that, that would be the fallout from that. Um, but I just want to back up and say that although I distrust many things that came out of the Bill Clinton administration, <laughs> many things, including Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is probably the thing that I distrust the most that came out of the Bill Clinton administration. But I thought safe, legal, and rare was a great concept, you know, because it does sort of speak to um, maybe people who are not kind of as hardwired towards reproductive choice or whatever we want to call that, you know, because if you say safe, legal, and rare, you acknowledge something that in certain circles is unfashionable to acknowledge. And that is that there's something usually, I mean, it, there's, yeah, I, I think this is fair to say. It. It'll probably get me in trouble. There's usually something a little sad about an abortion, right? There's just, you know, I mean, something sad happened. Either there were terrible medical consequences or it was just a an unwanted pregnancy or the circumstances of the pregnancy uh you know the were were tragic or terrifying or horrific or something uh or i mean just you know play them all out but it's usually kind of sad right i don't think anybody really walked away from an abortion feeling 100% happy and and i think acknowledging that is kind of important we don't like to do it and there is a school of thought uh, among the reproductive rights groups saying, don't say that because it, we really don't want to acknowledge that there's any kind of downside to abortion. But there is. You know, it's just it's it's a sad thing. It's not a happy day. I mean, it, there's a lot of times it's absolutely necessary. I completely believe in women having choice. But safe, legal and rare. That always struck me as like a great way to think about this. So that's number one. Number two is Yes, birth control is like a huge part of this. And, and I, I really do have more patience than most people do for conservative people, people on the right who I, I know people who fit this description, people on the right who say, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to be a jerk about this, but I really do feel like it's murder. You know, I really do feel like we're taking a life when, when there's an abortion. Um, and, you know, if you feel that way, then you're probably going to have pretty strong feelings about this whole idea of abortion. You're probably going to be strongly opposed to it as a moral question. And I don't think those people are bad people either. They either were brought up in a religious tradition that taught them that, or they just came to that conclusion on their own, that it's it's the taking of a life. Okay. Uh, I don't see how that makes them evil. Um, now, how they act on their their beliefs can, you know, spread across the, across a the continuum of qualities. But um, I don't think that's a, a terrible thing. But I think if you're going to feel that way and you're going to act on it and you're going to be militant about it, you've got to be militant about birth, about birth control. If, in fact, we're going to acknowledge that abortion is a sad thing, uh, that abortion to, to some people is the taking of a human life, then, yeah, we ought to go all in on birth control as much as possible. I know we have all seen that little that uh, little bit of the Clarence Thomas concurrence, where it seems like maybe some of that some other stuff is up for grabs, 
maybe even contraception, um, that would really be bad. And I, to me, it would be intellectually dishonest, too. Uh, I mean, we really ought to have tremendous access to birth control and a lot of education around birth control and everything being done to remove any stigma that attaches itself to birth control. I, I realize that hardline believing Catholics, for example, they're going to they're gonna have a problem. Uh, except there really aren't that many of them, I don't think. <laughs> I think the number of Catholics who are really opposed to birth control uh, is a very, very small subset of the overall church membership and attendance. So anyway, that's a lot of babbling, and I don't know that it necessarily answers Cheryl's question, but I, I do think rethinking the paradigm so that we're not standing on opposite sides of the line all the time, that's part of the problem. I mean, another part of the problem is we have a completely rogue Supreme Court who are who have way too much power, more power than the Supreme Court was ever meant to have, and they're just going to do whatever they want. Um, that's a problem. But I think just in terms of the the history, the modern history of the abortion debate, it's the history of people standing on, on opposite sides of the field, screaming at each other and, and not imagining that they could find any common cause. And I think there might be some, at least in some cases. All right. I mean, I want to believe that anyway. All right. So what do we got here? We got uh, We got Dave. Uh, in Ohio. Dave from Lake Como, Ohio. Lake Como Dave, etc. Dave, you're on the <laughs> long, air. Long time. I, I hope you're well. It's like Noho Hank. <laughs> it, actually, right now, and it's not what I'm calling about, but Ohio has become the land of the air quality alert. I mean, mm-hmm. we got to get out of the Midwest. Like three times in the last 10 days, we've had these 48-hour industrial particulate alerts and you know you don't even want to go outside it's just it's it's just paradise right and who are you going to call not the epa anymore uh... no 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 it's um yeah i think it's going to decline rapidly but as you know being a once in future resident of connecticut you were just trying to get it trying to clear the path to get there but that's going to take a while um if so you want if you want you know dave if you want because also I like you a lot and you're kind of a staunch supporter of the show. I'm starting a small business where we're going to ship uh, uh, bottles, plastic bottles of Connecticut air around the country. And, you know, remember Fair the woman? Enough. Remember the who was the woman? Pants. Who was the woman who was selling her farts in jars? Who was that? Who did that? Well, so this would be like way nicer than that. Uh, whoever was doing that, he's going to tell me in a few seconds. But I we just like a bottle of beach sand from Milford. Could that be rigged up? We could do anything like that. But I just feel like yeah, you live in the Midwest and the air is bad. We could just. Send a little bottle of air out to you. You could just kind of enjoy it and think about the good old days. All right. What is it you really wanted to talk about? Oh, that's okay. So, you know, for that reason, because we're going to be coming back there, keep an eye on the news in Connecticut. And you may remember that back in about the end of the winter in March, there were these dire stories that started coming out in the Connecticut press that were about these spiders, the Joro spider, J-O-R-O, that were, you know, thought to be ready to bring Connecticut and the Northeast to its knees. I mean, because these things are going to be parachuting in from, I guess, like the Southeast, where they've been already an invasive species, and they're big, and they're ugly, and they're scary. And, you know, I looked them up the other day, and I haven't heard another thing about them. Is this like Comet Kohotek in the 70s, where it was a big nothing burger, just a total disappointment? Or have you seen them? Have you had reports of these spiders? Well, first of all, now I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking what we should do is you do a show episode on like Y2K and Comic Kahootek and like all the and 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 2000. What was the thing? The no 20, 
2012. 2012? Was 2012 when we were all going to die? He's nodding, yeah. So, like, all the things where we're supposed to die or get wiped out or something like that. And the Joro spiders are kind of a washout at this point, at least around here. Maybe I shouldn't say that too loud, you know, because then I'm, like, jinxing us or something. Although, supposedly, like, first of all, they're really great looking. Uh, And... and, and and the other thing is they kill mosquitoes and stuff like that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not really sure that we were – and I get them mixed up with the jumping worms, the jumping earthworms. I've seen those here. I've seen those on my uh, front step, you know. I they, think yeah, – they're, they're supposedly they, – there's another species that eats them, though, the, the jumping worms, so that probably there's a problem with that species if you introduce them, but that's, you know. That's, that's a slippery slope. All right. First of all, I mean, told Stephanie Moto is the Instagram influencer who is selling her farts. But, um, yeah, no you know, way. and one of those things, I think it was the jumping worms. One of them was brought in to feed, like, platypuses in zoos. I think it might have been the jumping worms. They couldn't be feeding them big black and yellow spiders, right? So, um, and I just think, so it's really the platypus's fault. Like if the worms take over and wipe out the other worms, although you're saying there's like an uber worm that's going to kill the jumping worms. There, there's another one that they say is not, you know, itself harmful uh, to the environment and to the earth and all, or you know, the, to the dirt, but that it'll it'll consume these bad worms. But you know, I'll permit myself to be a little skeptical. Yeah. Well, in any case. I say blame the platypuses. Platypuses have been getting a free ride for a long time. Oh, they're so interesting. They're like half a duck and half a beaver or whatever it is they're supposed to be, you know. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, here here are some of the downsides of keeping platypuses around. It turns out they, they like jumping worms or whatever it was. There's some horrible thing that was brought in to feed them. I'm going to say it was jumping worms. All right, Dave. <laughs> Dave, I'm going to send you some air. I'm going to send you a little bit of Connecticut air. Um in fact, we could make it, like, really Connecticut air. Like, I don't know. I could have, like, Jerry Brooks breathe into a vial or something. What would be, like, a supremely Connecticut thing to do? Although I don't think he wants exhalations, right? <laughs> I think that worsens the problem of being in Ohio. He doesn't want exhalations. He doesn't want our CO2. He wants our air. He needs our air. All right. So somebody saved, uh, send Dave some Connecticut air. Uh, all right. We're going to have a poem. Let me give you the number. Anybody can call up about anything. Just I'm just reminding you of that. You could also ask that another Mr. Carp envelope be opened, although I find it very anxiety-provoking. The problem with the Mr. Carp concept is then I have to sort of figure out, I mean, these are full articles that he's sending me. I can't just sit here and read them while you wait. So, um, all right. So the number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Uh, and I don't know what else to say other than we're going to take another call right now, and then we're going to take a break. All right. Here's Michael from Durham. Hi, Michael. Hello. And what's on your mind? Well, a a little over 20 years ago, uh, one week after 9-11, my wife, daughter, daughter daughter-in-law, and I were in lower Manhattan where the craters were still smoking, and I saw the faces of New Yorkers that day, and I hadn't seen that look since the morning after Robert Kennedy had been assassinated in Los Angeles. And when I came home that night, I was lying in bed, and I started to write a poem, which I didn't put to paper. I had just created the whole thing in my mind, and when I was done, that was when I I set it down, and I've tried to uh, contact the White House for the 20th year 
uh, cele- not celebration, commemoration of 9-11, and that didn't seem to go anywhere. So I hope you don't mind if I, <laughs> if I choose you second. Uh, I would very much like to recite it because it means a great deal to me, and I expect to a number of other people who might be listening. Sure. It's not, it's not terribly long, is it? No, it's about two, three minutes, something like that. Two or three uh, maybe minutes. Maybe even less. All right. Ideally, it's less. Three minutes is actually an eternity in radio. But, uh, yes, I, under- I understand. All right. And it's called Rest Assured. <laughs> there are no people on this earth who are not welcome here, whether drawn by great ambition or propelled by stifling fear. If you are for us, we stand with you to face the world as one, to celebrate great works achieved and those still to be done. But the countenance of liberty is not so easily read by those who want to see a face of doubt or one of dread. They look for what they would impose, so fail to see what's there, and misconstrue diversity for a people unaware. The hallmark of a people free to live life as they choose presents a face of chaos to the ones who would abuse the product and the process of a system so designed to elevate the people by whose hand it is refined. Do not think we are too busy being free to lend a hand that so many different points of view could never make a stand for the heirs of Minutemen and pioneers will then reveal your sword of iron is no match for ours of alloy steel. That was very, very well done, and it wasn't anything like two or three minutes. And I can't imagine why the White House didn't snap that thing up. But I am proud. I am proud to have been the first public forum uh, in which Michael from Durham's poem about 9-11 was aired. Thank you for sharing that. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Lots of people have availed themselves of the phone lines, and we will talk to them. I'm a cork on the Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. I'm bored to death, let's argue. I'm bored to death, let's argue. I'm bored to death, let's argue what is going on with me. And maybe I was born confused and 
All right, we're having a mild problem with the computer right now, or the computer that Mr. McPants is using to screen calls. So we're going to replace it with a hot lead linotype style call screening computer. So what will <laughs> happen is that we have one here in the building, fortunately. It was built in 1880. Um, so what's going to happen is you're going to call up, and then Jonathan McPants is going to, using hot lead technology, uh, typeset uh, your name and town and what you're calling about. And then we'll print it, and then Cap Pastor will bring it in here. So it, there's going to be a little bit of a delay. You know, hot lead, although it's – I just read a little bit more during the break about this newspaper. It's kind of amazing. They bought one of those machines – in 1902, I mean, a machine that like, nobody's making anymore. Uh, they bought one of those machines in 19, and they're still printing their paper. Uh, they're still t- at least setting the type for their paper with that machine. So there. Okay. So, <laughs> so we're, uh, this, uh, I'm laughing just because the computer screen is just so insane right now. We really would be better off with hot lead. All right. So here we go. No, it's starting to work. It's all coming under control. Here is Phil from Tallinn. Hi, Phil. You're on the air. Hi, uh, how are you doing, Colin? I'm fine. Okay. Well, so uh, I was wondering what you would think about about pushing for uh, to get people on local boards of education who would do good things instead of bad things. Uh, you know, we've there's been this push for the past couple three years about getting people on local boards of ed to ban the boogeyman of like CRT and you know getting people to ban talking about gay stuff in classrooms, but I was wondering what you thought about pushing to elect people to local boards of ed who will encourage things like media literacy in the classrooms and epistemology so we can, you know, raise a generation of people who know the difference between right and wrong and how to tell the difference between what they hope will be true and what is actually true. Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, it's a laudable suggestion. I mean, we should acknowledge the fact that what really happened was, as part of the process you're describing, being on the Board of Education in a lot of places just started to suck in a way that it hadn't for a really long time. And it isn't just like SEL and CRT and all those boogeymen that don't or really don't matter add up to anything. Uh, but it's also stuff like masking, you know, and other kinds of COVID, uh, anti-COVID requirements. I mean, you know, th- what happened was the Board of Education meetings were often stormed by people who would create a huge scene and start yelling and screaming and in some cases show up on the lawn of a board of education member or the chairman of the board or something like that. I mean, it really is these, this place. I mean, I, I love your suggestion, except that there's a battleground now. There isn't kind of a neutral field of play right now. There's a battleground where a lot of kind of ugly and unpleasant stuff happens. So um, I think in some ways we're going to have to learn to talk better, talk and listen better than we do. It's not going to be just a matter of getting better people to be on the board. Yeah, I I can say as an educator, I I feel like we've really failed, uh, you know, an entire generation or two at getting people to know the difference between right and wrong and how to tell when they're being lied to. And I think that has caused a lot of problems for us today, uh, just not understanding when you're being lied to or when you're being manipulated. I think people ought to be better at that. Uh, And I think it has to start when you're young. Yeah, I mean, the media literacy stuff is, as you know, happening all over the place. But, I mean, the problem with it is, I'm trying to think of a good thing to analogize it to, but it's sort of like, you know, it's almost like talking about vaccine technology when it turns out we've got great vaccine technology. 
we just got a whole bunch of people who won't take vaccines. And there's a way in which the media literacy is is somewhat helpful. People do need to understand better. And and actually, even even at the exalted level of a Yale seminar, I find I'm teaching media literacy a lot. I mean, my kids are pretty media literate and they don't know how to spot these things. Although, let me just say this. It is a lot. It's sort of, you know, the moat and beam thing from the Bible. It's a lot easier to spot the the kind of media defect in in an opposing argument. You can sort of say, for example, like, I don't know, I get I had a column in the Hearst Papers on Sunday and you know, I was getting emails from people who said, well, these January 6th hearings, you know, they, they haven't produced any criminal convictions. <laughs> and they've produced 185, you know. But it's easy to spot that kind of thing. It's harder to spot the mistake we're making, right? The mistake I'm making, that you're making. It's harder to spot the thing that we absorbed and believed that wasn't true. Uh, and that's the reason we have the problem we have is that the people, you know, who believe spurious things – they don't know that they believe spurious things, but that that yeah. may include us as well. And I think, and I think we need to teach people how to keep an eye on that very thing. Yeah. You know how to how to take control of uh, of of the, the difference between their ideology and fact. You know, right? right. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Uh, well, listen. Thanks for your call. There's like a whole conversation that I'm on the one hand dying to have about that, but am also aware that it will get me in a lot of trouble. So I'm going to delay that for as many weeks and months as I possibly can. All right, boy, but these, all these calls are kind of interesting. All right, let's start with Christine. Christine in New Haven, you have the floor. Hi, Colin. Yes, this is Christine from New Haven. I have a suggestion for a CPTV radio program, and I want to hear what your opinion is about it. I would like to suggest that WNPR, CPTV, produce an American history show that's like a storytelling, in a storytelling format, aimed at about uh, grade three to grade five level. Because I find that it, it seems that a lot of people don't know American history even some very basic things. And I also am of the opinion that this lack of knowledge could lead to a lot of misunderstandings. So I'd love to see a kind of a fun American history show in a storytelling format. I think it's a really good idea. I I have no idea what is being done on public television for kids right now. I don't have any kids who are, I mean, my son's 32. So um, I don't know if there's that, maybe that kind of thing kind of exists. I mean, when you think of things from the past, like Schoolhouse Rock pops to mind, you know, where there there really were, were efforts made to take things like American history and civics, how a bill becomes a law, all that kind of stuff, uh, and package it up in a way that would be more attractive to kids, and I think that kind of was successful too. The fact that people actually remember Schoolhouse Rock and can sing some of the songs from it and stuff indicates to me that that can be a very successful way to do things. I don't know how well it would work on the radio. I mean, TV is just so much better at stimulating kids than than radio is. But I, but I certainly agree also about historical illiteracy. It's a. I mean, it's once again. Um, Beware of seeing the moat in the other person's eye and missing the beam in your own. Uh, I think a lot of us are kind of blind to various parts of American history. All right. So I was I, – well, no, I'm not even I – won't, I won't waste the time. All right. Here's Kathy in Mystic. Hi, Kathy. Hi. 
What's on your mind? Well, you were asking for a list of easy ways to uh, understand rap music and appreciate it. Yeah, or or specifically, people think that that they don't like rap, but they do yeah. like Hamilton. Hamilton, by the way, is playing here in Hartford right now at the Bushnell. And, and as long as we're on this topic, let me just say something else that always strikes me. I mean, I'm always astonished at the people who pay some pretty exorbitant amount of money to get Hamilton tickets and don't listen to the soundtrack like 30 times before they go. Because if you don't, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. I mean, it really is... It goes by very fast, and there's a lot of internal rhyming and, you know, double entendres and puns and things like that. And so I don't know what it would be like to sit there and watch Hamilton for the first time not having any preparation for it because it's just so densely packed in the way that a lot of hip-hop is, a lot of rap is. So anyway, the whole idea would be, like, what could we find for the person who maybe is freaked out by certain aspects of rap, including misogyny, stuff like that? What could we find that, you know, would— would be would tell people show people why they could really learn to like this particular style. Okay, I was a parent uh, um, escorting junior high school kids, middle school kids on a field trip back in the nineties, and all of a sudden the kids in the back started reciting what I thought was poetry, and I thought, wow, they've memorized verse after verse after verse of this, and what it was was. Um, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince doing Parents Just Don't Understand. <laughs> Which, you know, and it is poetry. Uh, it just happens to be a different kind of poetry. But yeah. Right. Um, they loved it, and, and it was it was funny and uh, relatively harmless and had no misogyny. <laughs> right. So, I, you know, I, I really would like to do something. Like, I, I'm, I'm not qualified to do this. I mean, I, I'm sort of qualified in the, <laughs> in the sense that that I listen to, you know, a certain amount of hip hop, and I'm probably not going to listen to the kind of stuff that strikes people, that makes people think that they don't like rap, you know? So I would listen to like Black Star or something like that, or, um, you know, I, I, I would listen to, well, I think Kick Push by Lupe Fiasco is a great example of a song that it's essentially all, all rap, but it's, Got an interesting orchestration to it. The theme, which is about skateboarding, two skateboarders who fall in love, seems to be a pretty innocuous theme. Uh, you know, that would be kind of a nice song to, you know. I, I, I'm sure there's ten of those. I just don't happen to be able to rattle them all off. Uh, and yeah, obviously no Kanye. Uh, all right, so that'll get people started. Um, all right, here's Mike and Woodbury, and then we'll take a break. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you, Colin? Just fine. Um so I would like your opinion on the on the the fraught issue of whether or not Joe Biden should run again. No, no, he should not. No, he should not. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. But here's here's some some issues. Um, you know, when if you know if he decides not to, when should he do that? Because if he he does it too soon, he's immediately a lame duck. If he does it too late, he doesn't allow for other candidates to you know come to the fore. And I think what you what what I mean, if he if he decides that he should run, I think there's a real danger of being a situation like Jimmy Carter and and Ted Kennedy, you know, where they say, no, there's no way this is going to work. So I'm going to I'm going to put my name out there and that could be more than one person. And that would be a disaster, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, you well, you agree with me. I mean, I like him. I think he 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 gets he's doing doing a much better job that he gets credit for. But he's going to be 82. And, you know, when he runs and that's just. 
too old for that job. I mean, it's the hard, it's the worst job in the in the world. And, yeah. You know. I mean, back you know back during. I guess I, I can't exactly pinpoint the month and year, but during the run-up to that to the last election, at some point I, I did a column, um, might have been in 2019, um, I wrote a column saying that Joe, Joe Biden is like, you know how Subaru owners tell you, man, I got 244,000 miles out of my Subaru and I'm still, you know, he's that Subaru. We, we, before he was ever elected, elected president, we already got... 400,000 miles out of Joe Biden. He was in the Senate forever. Mm. He was in the Senate forever, and then he was vice president. And really, there, I, I never thought he was the right nominee in the first place for that reason. You know, thanks. You've been a great car, Joe Biden. I'm going to leave you by the side of the road, unscrew the license plates, and walk away. So I, but did, so Pants thinks after Election Day this year is when Biden says he's not going to seek re-election. And that's probably a good rule of thumb. Now, the you other thing— after the midterms, after the midterms yeah, right after that's the midterms. That's, that's two more years of being a lame duck, though. I mean, well, I look. First of all, one thing that you can you could ask yourself, Mike, is how could things be worse than they are right now? <laughs> like, how could his approval ratings be worse? How could the general understanding of his presidency be more devalued than it is at the moment? And sometimes, I it'd be interesting to go back and look at LBJ and see when he announced this and what the overall effect was. Because, like, a lot of these problems aren't going to go away. But sometimes, if somebody says, "Look, I'm not going to, I'm not running for re-election," his approval numbers could go up. There's nothing we like better than somebody we don't that we who we will never be asked to vote for again. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Hillary Clinton's approval ratings plummeted the minute it was, it was clear that she was going to run for president. I mean, as a secretary of state, she actually had decent approval ratings. Uh, but uh, the minute it was clear she was going to seek the presidency, boom. Now, there are some other real reasons for that. But, uh, you know, the other thing that could happen uh, that I've thought about a lot um, is if Biden became, because of his age and maybe some growing infirmity, unable to keep going, then right. imagine that that he steps down. Kamala Harris becomes acting president of the United States, gets sworn in as president, and then she has, you know, let's say a year, year or a year and a half to, I mean, she's got really lousy approval ratings too. I don't think she's a particularly good candidate. The only thing that would help her would be if she were, if she became president and did better than Biden or inflation kind of got better on its own and Ukraine, you know, maybe she turned out to be a hawk on Ukraine more than he is or whatever, you know, I mean, that would be a really interesting thing to watch unfold. I mean, it could be interesting like a success or interesting like a train wreck. It's a little bit hard to know in advance. But anyway, uh, food for thought, all of it. But no, Biden should not seek another term. And yeah, there has to be enough room, as Mike is saying, for there to be a meaningful primary process. I mean, Harris, you know, I mean, I think she's so weak right now in the polls and stuff like that. I don't think it's a coronation, you know, I don't think it's it's hers to to, you know, to lose. Anyway, let's take a break. We'll come back. We won't have much time. But the number 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. I've been
All right, we are back. Once again, we have time for maybe two more calls. 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Thanks to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer today and just about every day, and we like it that way. Uh, Jonathan McPants is up here uh, screening calls and also keeping me informed about what I'm talking talking about or what I think I'm talking about. So we figured out LBJ announced that he wouldn't run March 31st, 1968, so seven months before the election. And according to uh, Jonathan McPants, his approval rating went up from 36 to 49, like overnight, basically. So this tends to confirm my, my I mean, I've believed for years that the least possible, the, the, you know, the most unpopular politicians are the ones we're being asked to vote for. Um, and, you know, I mean, if you want to be popular, don't run. Um, all right. Here's Bill from Stratford. We might have time for Nancy from Southampton. Uh, Bill, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. You're there. You're there. Good. Okay. Um, my name is Bill from Stratford. A quick story that I just can't make heads or tails out of. Last Thursday, my wife and I were going to babysit for our little grandchildren. We were going to Prude 8, and there was an accident ahead of us. All traffic came to a stop, and after about 15 or 20 minutes of waiting, I decided to walk up to where the accident was. There are many emergency vehicles there. As I got to within 30 or 40 yards, a state trooper, a woman, maybe in her mid-40s, very stocky, walked toward me, and of all the things she could have said to me, she said, do you have a reason for being here very aggressively? And I was so taken aback, I was quiet for a moment. And then she said, you need to turn around and leave right now. And I was quiet again for a moment. And she said, I said, I'm here for information. She said, turn around now or I'm giving you a ticket for interference. And I finally put up my hands and I said, okay. And I turned around and she watched me as I walked away. And I thought to myself, where's officer friendly? What, what was I doing wrong? I'm 70 years old. I happen to be white. I was wearing a we don't talk about Bruno shirt and I, and I weigh 165 pounds. I mean, I was no threat to anybody. I don't understand that with that officer. Well, you were not a threat to anybody unless they were trying to talk about Bruno, uh, yes. in which case you would become a threat. Also, interference, interference is technically a 15-yard penalty. I don't know that you can get a ticket for it. But, um, you know, let me just say this. She expressed herself in the wrong way in the wrong tone. There's just, you know, not a good way to do it. I mean— I sort of get her point, which is what they want everybody to do is stay in their cars and not create even worse problems with people walking all over an interstate or a state highway. I forget where you were. But, um, like, it just doesn't help them if everybody kind of, you know, gets out and starts playing detective and stuff like that. So I get that. But there's, yeah, there's no reason to talk to a citizen like that. And, you know, I don't know. I was talking to— Maybe she was nervous. She could have been—or just bad day, long day, hot day— crabby day. We all have that. But, you know, you are in a kind of a public facing role when you're a state trooper. And it just for the the sake of societal comedy, you know, there's a great case to be made for being as nice as possible. Um, I always go back to my old friend, uh, Jim Strelacci, who was the chief of police in West Hartford. I was, I was saying this over the weekend in connection uh, with the horrible Akron incident. Um, but Strelacci always had this rule of thumb where he said, he said to his officers, treat everybody as if they're a potential witness, not as if they're a potential suspect, um, which, you know, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. I, I like it. 
All right. So it looks like Nancy from Southampton is going to get the last word here today. Hi, Nancy. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to say round of applause to the guy that read his poetry earlier. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. He deserves gold stars all around. And to think he wrote it for 9-11 and how timely it is now, that's almost scary. But um, I thought I was just very moved. I thought it was a wonderful poem. That's that's great. Thanks for doing that kind of close listening. Also, it's a poem that he wrote in his head. Uh, you know, that he, oh he, he composed it in his head, according to him. I mean, there's a great tradition of that. Um, I mean, John Milton had to write everything in his head because, uh, <laughs> you know, he couldn't, he was blind and had gout and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I mean, all of Homer's poem, poetry, assuming there was one person who was Homer, was all kind of oral, uh, wasn't written down anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's a, but it's still uh, writing stuff in your head. That's, it was very impressive. Well, thanks. It thanks. Was. Thanks for being a supporter of, locally sourced poetry. Uh, And so we are about to say farewell. I can tell you we have some exciting stuff coming up in the next couple of days. Tomorrow's show is going to be something about something I've been talking about and writing about for a while. It's about how the January 6th um, hearings were, were created consciously to be really good television. You know, and really, if you go back to Watergate, Michael Schutzen, the historian, historian says, Watergate, it didn't happen in our lives, not the way inflation or even a, like the Vietnam War happens in our lives. Watergate happened on television, and so you want it to be really good television. And it, that's been the case all along. So Frank Rich and I have been having conversations about this since the Iran-Contra hearings. <laughs> so he's going to be back. Hopefully we're going to record with him tomorrow. And then James Ponowazic, who's just sort of the demigod of this whole topic. Uh, James Ponowazic of the New York Times will be with us. Uh, so we got that. Uh, Lily Tyson, senior producer, she's got a show about monuments. Uh, I'm not 100% sure where we're going with that. And then on Friday, we're going to talk about the old man. No, not me. We're not talking about me. We're talking about the Jeff Bridges series on Hulu. Thank you. But it's really amazing. It's really good. All right. We have to go. Thanks for playing.